This sermon was preached by Peter Nakotra, head pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Woodhaven, Queens. Grace Baptist was planted in 2001 and is seeking to reach South Queens and North Brooklyn with the gospel. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gbcny.org. Please feel free to distribute the sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Well, a few months ago, uh, in a few months actually, Lord willing, Benny and Fendi, and I don't see them here today, do I? Uh, they're going to have a little baby boy, as we said, sometime in the end of August. Uh, and it's not uncommon for friends and family to give suggestions for what the name should be, what the little boy should be. So, people want to throw in their two cents uh, to, to tell them what they think they should name the baby. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to tell them what I think they should name their son, although they do have a name. But I'm going to tell them a few names I don't think they should name their son. I'm going to tell them names not to name that boy. Because there are some names that have such a negative association uh, because they belong to someone who did such evil that you don't want to put your kid through that. You don't want your kid going through life with one of those kind of names. So, for instance, right, I would say to Benny and Fendi, do not name your son Adolf. Don't do that. Don't name your son Benedict. That's a bad name. Don't name him Nero, Genghis, Attila, Osama, Saddam, right? But absolutely most of all, the one name you should never name your son is Judas. Don't name that boy Judas because a man named Judas committed the most horrific, horrendous, vile act in the history of the world. And that is that he betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. He sold him out to the religious leaders of the day who had him crucified. And he did this almost 2,000 years ago, and it is still and forever will be the greatest act of betrayal ever. And his name will go down forever as the committer of the worst crime in history. Well, Jesus ends Matthew 25 by telling his disciples what's going to happen when he returns in glory. And how he will separate the sheep from the goats, and how he will judge all the nations. And, And when we come to chapter 26, he focuses them again from the glory to come to his cross to come. And he says to them in two days that he would be betrayed and he would be crucified. And then we read that he's having dinner at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany, where Mary anoints him for his burial by pouring out $20,000 worth of precious perfume on him. And we know from the Gospel of John that's actually four days before, sometime around Saturday. And, And for Mary, this was an act of tremendous worship and devotion to Jesus. She loved him. And she so loved him, and she so valued him that she gave him her very best. Well, Judas complains about wasting this expensive perfume on Jesus. When he says it could have been sold for a ton of money and given to the poor. And then he stirs up the other 11 apostles to complain as well. Yeah, we could have given this to the poor. And we saw that Judas really didn't care about the poor at all, actually. In fact, we know that he was covetous, and we know that he was a thief. And as the apostle's treasurer and the keeper of the money box, we know that he used to take what was in it. But Jesus defends Mary, and he tells his disciples that he trumps the poor, who he says you will have with you always. And now in verses 14 to 16, which I just read, we see Judas setting up this betrayal. And I'd like to look at it using a three-point outline. If you have a bulletin, it'll be on the back of that bulletin. If not, raise your hand, and and one of the ushers will, will swing one by. And the points are who Judas was, why Judas went, what Judas got. Who he was, why he went, and what he got. Pretty simple. And let's look at the beginning of verse 14. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot. 
Now Judas is called Judas Iscariot, and Iscariot means from the village or region of Kerioth. And Kerioth was in the southern part of Judea. So unlike most of the other apostles who were from Galilee, Judas was somehow from Judea. And how he met Jesus and what he was doing in Galilee, was he living in Galilee, we don't know any of those things. But we do know from the qualifications that Peter sets forth for an apostle in Acts chapter 1, that Judas was following Jesus since his baptism by John the Baptist. So that means he is following Jesus for somewhere more than three years and less than three and a half. Ultimately, he was a full-time disciple, which means he left his home, he left his job to follow Jesus. You see, there were disciples who, who only followed Jesus when he was in their vicinity or their neck of the woods. And they didn't leave jobs. And they didn't leave home. So they were, if you will, part-time disciples. But Judas was one who was a full-time disciple. He did leave his home. He did leave his job to follow Jesus. And we know that he was most likely a very religious man. Probably one who was of good character outwardly. Uh, and conduct outwardly. Uh, and he was probably respected by his peers and by the religious establishment. And he, like most Jews, would have been, been waiting for and anticipating the coming of the Messiah, the one who would liberate Israel from their enslavement to Rome, the one who would crush all of Israel's enemies and, a, and establish a kingdom on earth, right? The kingdom that Daniel said would stand forever and ever. Uh, and that, and that, that, that would catapult Israel to, to a greatness that would far surpass the greatness that Israel experienced even under King David and his kingdom. Well, the buzz of Jesus coming on the scene uh, right after John the Baptist uh, took, took many by storm because John said he was coming and said he was actually there. Uh, and, it, and this moved Judas uh, to get up, forsake all, and follow Jesus. And as I said, he spent you know, over three years traveling with Jesus and basically living with Jesus. And, and he was in close contact and he heard his teachings and he, he witnessed his healings. And he saw the casting out of demons. And he saw two people raised from the dead. And he heard about a third one, Jairus' daughter. Uh, and he was sent out by Jesus with the other apostles as well to go and preach the gospel. And like them, he was even given authority to do miracles. So he heard it all. He saw it all. And he even did some of it himself. And after that, he was chosen by Jesus to be one of his twelve apostles. One of his twelve close associate sent ones. Now that said, every time the apostles are listed in the Gospels, Judas is always listed last, and there is always a qualifier by his name. Matthew and Mark each say, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Luke says, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. John tells us twice. Twice he tells us that Judas was a traitor. In, in John 6, verses 70 and 71, after many disciples leave Jesus because his teachings are way too hard, Jesus asks the apostles if they want to leave too. To which Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and, and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the one. And then Jesus responds and says, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke, John says, of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So John is saying, listen, I want to make sure you understand that Jesus is saying that Judas is a devil, and he's a devil because he's going to betray him. 
That's what he means when he says the devil. And then John calls him a traitor again in John 12. We looked at it the last time I preached. When Mary anoints Jesus, we read this, 12.4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him? So the gospel writers don't want us to miss this about Judas. They want to make sure that we don't make a mistake about Judas, right? And don't think of him as another Judas. They want us to be careful to, 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 to separate Judas from everybody else, from the other 11 apostles. They're pointing him out, and they're working hard to separate him so we know he's not the real deal. He's not really one of the 12 as far as heart goes. Well, we also know that Judas must have shown some aptitude in managing money, quite honestly, because he was given the job of being the apostle's treasurer. They had a treasurer. And John 12 tells us that he had the money box. And this was actually a very respected position, one that the other apostles would have highly esteemed, actually. Uh, And the reason they needed a treasurer is because Jesus and his full-time disciples, they didn't have jobs. They didn't work. They left their jobs. And they were supported by the givings and the donations of others. Right? And, 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 they used, and they used those givings to buy food and, 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 and to buy supplies for the ministry that, that Jesus had. And Judas was the collector and the allocator uh, of, of the money. But the problem with Judas was he was a thief. He was a thief. In John 12, 5, Judas voices anger over Mary's waist of this precious oil, right? And he says this, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? You see, he thinks in terms of money. He's got a number in his head, 300 denarii. And then John explains for us in verse 6, this he said, not that he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. So Judas loved money. And he coveted money. And he was actually stealing money that people gave to the Lord Jesus. Now the major difference between Judas and the 11 other apostles is that Judas was a lost man and they were not. Is that they were regenerated men. They were redeemed. They were brought to life. And Judas was not. Now the other 11, they were spiritual mess. Yes, they were. And they misunderstood a ton. Yes, they did. But they were given life in Christ. And Judas was not. And we are certain that Judas was an unsaved man because ten verses later, in Matthew 26, Jesus says it would have been better if Judas had never been born. When Jesus was praying to his father in the high priestly prayer in John 17, he said in verse 12, praying, he said this about his disciples, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. That's Judas. That the scripture might be fulfilled. And perdition means damnable, destruction, to perish, to eternally die. In Acts chapter 1, Peter says that Judas was numbered with them, but was never one of them. So Judas had a zeal. And he was excited about about the hope of Israel being restored under, under the Messiah. And he believed for a while that Jesus was the Messiah. And he left everything to chase that belief and to chase that dream. But his heart never left the world. And he never really loved Jesus. 
nor did he really believe that he was the son of God as the others did you see he was never made clean by Jesus he was never really one of his sheep so he never really heard his voice therefore he never truly followed him so he joined up with Jesus if you will but in a state of unbelief and sadly that's the state that he died and so who was Jesus just a short little snapshot of um, who was Jesus who was Judas secondly why he went verses 14b to 15a then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot uh, went to the chief priest and said what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you so he goes to the chief priest and says what are you going to give me if I betray Jesus to you right and, and you've got to believe you've got to believe that when the chief priests see him coming in and saying what will you give me if I betray him to you they're static this is an answer to their prayers so they think they say Judas is a godsend and, 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 and here's why because Judas gives them a mole on the inside someone who can lead them to Jesus so that they can take him quietly without any fanfare sort of go under the radar remember that they don't want to take him during the feast it's the Passover feast Jerusalem is teeming with people many people have come from the north which would be Galilee and a lot of those people like Jesus or at least thought well of him not that he was the Messiah but that he was at least a prophet and so they didn't want to create a whole hubbub during the feast they wanted to take him quietly and they were going to wait at least 10 days until, until the feast was done and then they were going to take him they were going to probably take him in some back alley and stone him but now Judas offers them an opportunity that they really can't refuse and they will indeed take Jesus in two days just as Jesus predicted remember what he said in two days this is going to happen which shows us once again the sovereignty of God and how Jesus was in control of everything and we're going to see it all through chapter 26 and all through chapter 27 he's in control and, and the writers of the Gospels are going to make it so clear that he's in control because he wants us to remember that he willingly gave himself up. He was never a victim. Well, the question that we have to ask and has been asked and debated for almost 2,000 years is why did Jesus, why did Jesus, why did Judas do this? Why did Judas betray him? What was his motive for the greatest betrayal in the history of mankind? And i got to tell you, there are many, many theories and ideas out there on this. But I believe they can all fall into or be put into four categories, and I'll give them to you. The first being that he loved money. That he coveted money. The second is that Judas was frightened. He was frightened. The third theory or category is that he was trying to prompt Jesus to take his position as the Messiah. And lastly... He was disillusioned. Judas was disillusioned. Now the first motive that, that Judas loved money and was greedy for, for money and was covetous is actually the only motive the scriptures actually give us. It says he was. Right? We know from John 12 that he was a thief. He stole the money that was given to Jesus to support the ministry and those in the ministry. And remember, they didn't have jobs and the whole thing. Right? And he carried the money and he was the group's treasurer and he stole from it. When he saw Mary pouring out that, that expensive oil right, and falling onto the ground off of Jesus, he got really upset and right, claiming to be giving it to the poor. But in reality, he could care less about the poor. It just didn't land in his pocket. And so Jesus actually mildly rebukes him. And it seems that it's at that point that, that he goes to the Jewish leaders, driven by greed, to sell out the Lord Jesus Christ. So he loved money. And as we read today, 
from 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You see, you can't love money and love God. You can't serve money and serve God. You just can't. Right? Uh, you, you can't do those things. And the truth is, you can never have any money and still love money. You don't have to have it to love it. But you can't love God and love money. And, and, and the rhetorical question that Jesus asks in Matthew 16 should always be ringing in the ears of all men, but especially believers, where he says, what does it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? Basically, what he's saying is, if you had everything, if you could own everything, and, and what good would it be if you had all the wealth of this world, all the profits of this world, if you owned everything, but lost your own soul? Basically saying this, one person's soul is more valuable than all the stuff of this world. One person's soul. And so you see the values. And it's a rhetorical question. It doesn't, it doesn't profit you anything. Well, Judas does indeed love money. But I don't think it's his only motive here. I really don't. I think it's more. I don't think it's his only motive for betraying Jesus because he could have gotten a lot more than 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver wasn't peanuts, but it wasn't a ton of money either. It was about a month's salary in that day. It was about a month's salary. And listen, he could have easily asked, give me 3,000 pieces of silver. Give me 30,000 pieces of silver. And I'm telling you, the Jewish leaders are probably going to give it to him. He could have named this price, but he doesn't name this price. Instead, he says, what are you willing to give me? What are you willing to give me? So I don't think greed was the only motivator here, but certainly part of it. The second theory as to why Jesus, Judas would betray Jesus was that, that, that Judas was frightened. You see, they say he could see the handwriting on the wall. Uh, he knew the Jewish leaders were gunning for him. He knew that, that it was only a matter of time until they got Jesus. And he was fearful that once Jesus was arrested, that the leaders of the Jews would go ahead and they would come after the disciples. So to save his own skin, he makes a preemptive move and he betrays Jesus to them to save himself. Third theory is that Judas was trying to prompt Jesus to take his role as Messiah, trying to jumpstart him into being the king. All right? This theory says that, that Judas knows that Jesus is the Messiah, although a political one in his mind, uh, and to get him to act on it, to get him to step up, stop hanging out with the lowly and healing people and start getting into battle here, start you know, rallying the troops together, to get him to move, to get him into action, he betrays him, hoping that once he's arrested by the, the Jewish leaders, it would jumpstart him into action. He would start taking the role he was meant to take. I don't think so. The fourth theory is that Judas was disillusioned with Jesus. That, that he thought that Jesus was the Messiah, but when Jesus didn't rally a rebellion against Rome, that Judas became discouraged. He became disillusioned and even hateful towards Jesus all the time. And to me, this makes a lot of sense because like most Jews, Judas's understanding of the Messiah was that he was a political and a military Messiah. Right? That there were going to be conquests going on in the here and the now. And this is what John the Baptist thought, actually. Which is why, when he's in prison, he sends someone to ask Jesus, are you the one, or do we look for another? So the Jews are waiting for a savior from their enslavement to Rome, a king that would rule the world from Jerusalem. But instead of doing that, Jesus associated with the lowest level of people. And he used his power to heal people instead of to gather up an army. 
And he was meek and lowly and not regal and kingly. Well, Judas started following Jesus because he thought he was the Messiah, the one who would lead Israel to, to world prom- prominence. And, and this was the buzz in the beginning going around among the disciples. Right? John the Baptist had declared that Jesus was the Messiah. He said, this is him. Right? He's the Lamb of God. And his miracles declared that he was the Messiah. When Andrew first met Jesus, the first thing he did was he goes to his brother Peter and he says to Peter, we have found the Messiah. And Judas heard all kinds of people question whether Jesus was the Messiah. A lot of Messiah buzz going on about Jesus. So Judas saw Jesus as the one who would lead Israel out of bondage. He heard the demons cry out that Jesus was the Son of God. Therefore, he follows Jesus for over three years. And he leaves his family and his job to do so. But as time goes on, he starts seeing and hearing things that trouble him. Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. And he said that you had to become like little children if you wanted to enter his kingdom. And he said you had to be like little children if you were to become great in his kingdom. And I'm sure he was really disappointed when Jesus fed the 5,000 men, plus women and children, with a few fish and a few pieces of bread. And the people then wanted to take Jesus by force and make him their king. And Jesus said, No, I will not be your king. And he sent away the multitudes. And then he sent away his his disciples as well. And I'm sure, I'm sure there was was a building up of things that he had seen and he heard from Jesus that disappointed him and disillusioned him. Like Jesus constantly being at odds with the Jewish leaders. Like Jesus telling the people, pay your taxes to Caesar. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Like when he sends away the rich young ruler, telling him, listen, you want to follow me? Sell all your stuff. Give it to the poor. And then follow me. Like not retaliating against Herod after Herod put John the Baptist to death when he should have done something there. Shouldn't just let that happen. And then constantly telling his disciples that he was going to be put to death in Jerusalem. Listen, the Messiah doesn't get put to death. The Messiah doesn't die. No, he's a conqueror. He conquers people. He doesn't get crucified. He's a mighty king. And no one lays their hand on the king Messiah. Yet Jesus kept saying, I'm going to be crucified. And that must have caused Judas great angst. But then there's a glimmer of hope for Judas. There's a glimmer of hope when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey to shouts of, Hosanna to the Son of David. But that means king stuff right there. Only to be disillusioned yet again. When Jesus cleanses the temple, throws out the money changers, kicks out those who sell animals, add to that, he sits there and woes the scribes and Pharisees seven times, calling them hypocrites. And then telling them that they would not escape the condemnation of hell. And he ends it all by telling them, guess what? Your city and your temple is going to be destroyed. It's going to be flattened and it's going to become dust. So any hope that Jesus was the Messiah, that's gone. That's gone for Judas. You see, he's disillusioned with Jesus. Judas is disillusioned with Jesus because Jesus wasn't his kind of Messiah. He wasn't his kind of king. He was not his kind of savior. 
And that's the problem, friends. That's the problem with many professing Christians today. They are disillusioned with Jesus because he is not their kind of Messiah. He is not their kind of Savior. Right? He's not the kind of Savior they thought he was. They want someone to fix things for them, to fix their bad marriage, to fix their bad children, to fix their hard circumstances. They want someone to heal them from their illnesses. I'm sick. I'm sick. I need help. They want someone that, 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 that can give them prosperity, give them a better job, take them out of the sad situation they are in, whatever that sad situation is. They want someone to give them peace, but not his kind of peace. Someone to make them happy. They want someone to make them, them feel good. Or to stop all the injustice in this life. I'm tired of all the bad things happening. If Jesus was real, why doesn't he just stop it? That's what he should do. You see, they want to be forgiven for their sins. They want that. Everybody wants that. I mean, who doesn't want that? But they don't want to forsake their sins. I want Jesus, but I don't want to stop living the way I want to live. Don't tell me i got to stop being sexually immoral. Don't tell me i got to stop being uh, covetous or love money. Don't tell me that because that's what I do. And that's just how God made me. So I want Jesus, but I don't want him to tell me what to do. I don't want to surrender. They want Jesus to be their kind of Savior. But that's not the kind of Savior Jesus is. He came to save people from their sins. He came to save them from the consequences of their sins, which is an eternal death. He came to redeem them, buy them back to God, to reconcile them, bring them to God, to take away the enmity between man and God. That's the kind of Savior Jesus is. He's an eternal Savior. He didn't come to save men from poverty. He didn't come to save men from social injustices. He didn't come to save them from sickness or unhappiness. He came to save them from their sin, which is every person's biggest problem. You know, when you say to someone, I know what your biggest problem is. How do you know? I say, I know because you're a sinner. That's your biggest problem. It may not be for you now, but it will be later when there could be no solution to that problem. But now there could be. And listen, when he saves you from your sin, here's the part that many don't like, but is the absolute truth. He becomes your Lord as, as well as being your Savior. He becomes your Lord. And that means he's your master. That means he's your king. That means he's your sovereign. And that necessitates surrender. Right? That necessitates obedience to him. He says, why do you call me Lord? Why do you make a show that I'm your Lord, when you don't obey me? Why do you give me lip service? Why do you give me arm-waving service? Why do you give me attendance service? And you don't obey me. That's what he's saying. Necessitates obedience. It necessitates loyalty to him. It necessitates turning away from sin and being busy with his business and suffering for his sake. And this disillusions many. They want a healer. They want a motivator. They want a genie in a bottle. right? They want a get-out-of-hell-free card. They want those things. But they don't want a Lord. They don't want to give up their sin. Full surrender to Jesus. And it's, it, is, it is who we are. I can't tell you how many people say they want Jesus. But when pressed, when pressed with sin in their life, 
I got to give up the immoral relationship. I got to give up the guy who's not my husband. I got to give up the girl who's not my wife. Right? When pressed with that, they don't. They go away. Because it's unless it's a sovereign work of God in the heart, they will not come, and they will not surrender. You see, salvation is of the Lord. Up to us, left to ourselves, we will never come. The foolishness to think that man has a part in salvation. We would never come. We would turn away. We would cling to our sin. It's only when Christ invades the heart and, and pricks the heart that we, that we become broken before Him. And then we don't want our sin anymore. Not that it's easy to give it up, but we don't want it anymore. We want Him. He trumps. He's more beautiful and more lovely than our sin is to us. But He's got to do it. He's got to do it. Well, Judas becomes disillusioned because Jesus wasn't his kind of Savior, his kind of Savior, his kind of Messiah. And, and one of the lessons we can learn from Judas is this. You can have an abundance of spiritual advantages. You can be super duper close to the kingdom and in the end, you can be lost. You can be lost. Judas had one of the best seats in, in the kingdom, so to speak. All right? He basically lived with Jesus for over three years. He saw miracle after miracle after miracle. And he listened to the world's greatest preacher and teacher, bar none. And he heard the gospel preached perfectly over and over and over again. And he heard warnings about unbelief. And he heard about all the blessings of believing in Jesus. And he dwelt with God in the flesh. And he spent a lot of time with the holiest man that ever lived. And he witnessed perfect love like you and I can ever imagine. And he witnessed pure compassion. And he witnessed complete humility. All things you and I can never see that way. And he saw Jesus walk on water. And he saw him feed 20,000 people, men and women and children, with just a couple of fish and a couple of loaves of bread, which he himself helped hand out. And he saw it keep reproducing. And I'm sure he was in on many fireside conversations with Jesus where truth just was oozing out of his mouth. And I'm sure he was in those. He was at the anointing at Bethany. And he was looking at Simon, who was once a leper. And he was looking at Lazarus, who was once four days dead, stinking dead. And now they are both alive. And they are both well. Both reminders of the power and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. He's looking at them. They're right in front of him. Reminders of this great glory of Jesus. Add to that, Jesus, Judas himself preached the gospel. Add to that, he was given power to do miracles. Yet in the end of it all, he was never truly saved. He was never truly regenerated. And he was in, and this day he's in hell. You couldn't get any closer to the kingdom of God than Judas got. But in the end, he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Listen, many people in churches, they go to church. They listen to sound preaching. They sing really good gospel-centered songs. They hold to good sound doctrine. And they are active in the church. Yet they will miss heaven and they will miss eternal life because they were never truly born again. They understood the gospel. They saw the power of the gospel all around them. But it never 
penetrated their hearts. They were never spiritually minded. They were never kingdom minded. They were never Christ minded. Oh, they were church minded. They were activity minded. They may have been religious minded, but they were never Christ minded. There was no deep devotion, no deep affection for Jesus Christ, just an acknowledgement of Him. But their hearts don't beat for Him. He doesn't motivate them unto holy living. You see, knowing Christ doesn't turn them from sin. You can't say you know Christ and continue in sin unaffected. You just can't. If there's no brokenness, if there's no sorrow over sin, if there's no genuine repentance, then there's no genuine Jesus. It's just, it can't be. It can't be. If there's no breathing, there's no life. So like Judas, they are a foolish virgin. And like Judas, they have hidden their talents in the ground. And you know, and we have this great contrast in chapters 25 and 26 where we see it with the wise virgin and the foolish virgin. And the tr- so we see it with the true believer and the fake believer. And we see it with Mary and, and Judas in chapter 26. Mary, she loves Jesus. She's devoted to Jesus. While Judas loves money. And he's devoted to his agenda. Mary gives Jesus her best. Judas takes from Jesus whatever he can get. Mary sees Jesus as her Lord. Judas sees him as some ticket to national glory. Mary, who heard Jesus, it changed her heart. While Judas heard Jesus, it hardened his heart. Mary, who in some way saw Jesus' death as her entrance to forgiveness and to eternal life, while Judas saw it as the end of Israel's hope. In Mary, you have the light of love. In Judas, you have the darkness of sin. One is memorialized for her act of love and one is infamous for his wicked deed of betrayal. Listen, both were very close to Jesus. Both saw and heard many of the same things. Yet one is in paradise and one right now is in hell. So Judas is a major warning to to the church today. And that is that it's not how much you know, it's not how much you do, it's not how long you've been coming to church or you've been saved, but rather who you know, who you love, who you have devoted to, who you obey. One commentator said this, one's true spiritual condition is revealed by their affections and devotions for the Lord Jesus and by their estimate of his worth and the value of his atoning death. You see, if Jesus doesn't mean everything to you, then he doesn't mean anything to you, really. But if he means everything to you, then that changes everything, does it not? And so, who who Judas was, why Judas went, and now what he got. Verses 15 and 16. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. So Judas goes to the priest, the chief priest, and says, what do you give me if I deliver him to you? Right? If I deliver him quietly with no fanfare under the table, and the chief priest count out 30 pieces of silver, and they give it to him. And again, it's not a ton of money. Right? We see from Exodus 21, which, which Chris read today, that 30 pieces of silver was the price that one had to pay if their ox gored another man's slave. Right? So 30 pieces of silver was actually what, it, what a slave was worth. That's the, the price or the value of a slave. And this transaction 
between Judas and the Jewish leaders was prophesied way back in Zechariah, Zechariah 11:12. There we read, Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And again, it's not a lot of money. It's about a month's salary. And Charles Spurgeon said this concerning the value of it. He said, Christ must be sold cheap that he might be more dear to the souls of the redeemed. And he must be sold cheap to be more, more valuable to us. So 30 pieces of silver for this, for, uh, silver uh, was what the Savior of men was betrayed for. And listen, people pay more money than 30 pieces of silver for pets, for furniture, to go on vacations, than what the Son of Man was sold for. Listen, if Judas had rightly known who Jesus was, they could have offered him 300 million pieces of silver. And you know what he would have said? Not on my life. I would not do that. Not on my life. My Savior is worth more to me than anything. And he's worth more to me than everything in this world. And then he would have broke out into a hymn that would not be written for another 1,900 years, which we'll sing right after the sermon is over. And that is this. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. Yes, I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. Give me Jesus. He's the pearl of great price. But Judas doesn't do this, and he didn't. Because his heart was hardened against Jesus. And he was disillusioned with Jesus. So he's done with him. I'm done with you now. I followed you for three years. It didn't go as planned, or so it would seem to have gone. And now I'm going to get whatever I can get. And this is the greatest mistake ever made. It's greater than Decca Records turning down the Beatles in 1962 because they thought this band is never going to sell anything. It's greater than the woman in England who six years ago accidentally threw away the winning lotto ticket for $181 million. It's greater. And it's greater because the stakes here are eternal. Eternal life and eternal death. Listen, Christ is precious and he is priceless. And his blood is precious and priceless to the believer. All the goods of this world, all the money of this world, all the money in gold and Fort Knox cannot pay even for one sin. Not even for one sin. Even as Alec preached last week about all the blood sacrifices, they could not take away sin. You could have all the goods of this world. It cannot pay the even one sinful thought. Even for one what you might call a small sin. And by the way, there are no small sins. But even one, it cannot pay for it. Only the blood of Christ can pay the sin, any sin, and did pay the sin. And for those who have been saved by Christ, they find this extremely precious. Extremely precious. Listen, I don't like blood. I don't like looking at blood. If I visit you in the hospital and you've got one of those things in, it makes me a little queasy. I don't like it. But I love the blood of Jesus. And we're going to find out that he's going to sweat that blood for us. So the blood of Jesus is beautiful to us. It is precious to us. It is valuable to us because we can't be saved with apart from it and without it. Well, as soon as Judas cuts the deal with the chief priest, we read, from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. 
He's got his 30 slimy pieces of silver in his, in his pockets, and now he sets out to betray Jesus. He's determined, or he's seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus. Listen, he has walked with Jesus for almost three and a half years. And instead of seeking to know Jesus better, or even know him, he is seeking to destroy him. The one who has done nothing but love him and show him countless evidences of his deity, Jesus, Judas wants to destroy. And how utterly foolish, by the way, to think he could actually betray Jesus. The one who had 12 legions of angels at his beck and call. The one who had power over, over natural things and supernatural things. Right? The one who knew what was in the heart of all men. You see, Jesus allowed himself to be betrayed. He allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to be mocked and beaten and crucified. Why? Because it was his Father's will that he would redeem the likes of Mary and the likes of the other 11 apostles and the likes of sinners like you and me. We ought to praise God for that. Well, in closing, I don't have to tell you that Judas Iscariot is one of the saddest stories in the Bible. Never was a man closer to Jesus who was an eyewitness to more miracles than the books of all the world could hold and yet was eternally lost. Judas is the greatest example of lost opportunity this world has ever known. And if someone so close to Jesus has ended up in hell and is eternally damned, shouldn't that make the rest of us double and triple check ourselves? If Judas, who had a thousand times more opportunities and advantages than you and I will ever have, could see and do things that you and I will never see and do, and if he is in hell and will end up in the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels, if that's his lot, and it is, and it should be better, it would be better he were never even born. But if that's the case for Judas, should we who claim Christ now not make double and triple sure that we're in Christ? Only a fool would say, oh, I'm good. Oh, I'm good. Well, I made a profession 20 years ago, 10 years ago. I go to church. I was baptized. Someone laid hands on me and prayed. I came up. I walked out. Where's my hand? Should we not make sure? We live in a day of easy believism, friends. We do. It's very easy to make a claim. But the heart and the life, that's another story. And if anybody could have claimed something and remind you that when Jesus says at the Last Supper, one of you twelve will betray me, the eleven of them don't all turn around and point to Judas and say, there's the man right there. You know what they say? Is it me? Am I going to do it? Lord, is it me? They don't suspect Judas. He doesn't look like a betrayer. They think he's one of them. Well, the issue is how much do you value Jesus? See, the, G, the chief priests, they put no value on Jesus at all. That's why they give Judas 30 pieces of silver. They value their religion. They value their religious system. They value their positions. But they did not value Jesus. Judas doesn't value Jesus either. He values money. He values his idea of what a Messiah is. Mary, on the other hand, she highly values Jesus. He was her Lord and he was her Savior. She valued his life. She valued his death. Even though she could not grasp all the details of his death, she still valued it. And she lived her life valuing him. And brothers and sisters, it is not enough to say that we highly value Jesus. We have to live 
like we highly value Jesus. And that means devotion to Jesus. And that means obedience to Jesus. And that means having high thoughts about Jesus and His life and His death and His resurrection and His ascension and His coming again. And desiring to live like He lived and to love like He loved. And that means we don't change Him into our kind of Savior. But rather, we conform to Him as our Savior and our Lord. And if we truly fix our eyes and our hearts on Him and gaze upon Him through the eyes of faith, we will all the more see just how precious and how priceless He really is. And I'm telling you, there is so much more of Him for us to have. And He wants to give it to us. Now, if you don't truly highly value Jesus, if He doesn't mean everything to you, then more than likely, He doesn't live within you. And that means that you're still in your sins. And it doesn't matter if you come to church or if you participate in church. Right? A heart that is not devoted to Jesus is devoid of Jesus. It just is. A heart that is not devoted to Jesus is devoid of Jesus. And if you want, you want to truly know Jesus, and quite honestly, everyone should, then you need to know that your sins have separated you from God and will follow you all the way to the day of judgment and you will hear those terrible words, guilty, 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 guilty. But Jesus so loved sinners that he let Judas betray him and he let the Jewish leaders arrest him and he let the Romans crucify him upon a cross and he let men spit in his face and he let men beat him up and pull his beard out and whip his flesh apart and he let him do all of those things so that he could pay for sins of rebels like you and me. Like you and me. And while on that cross, his precious blood was spilled, was pouring out of him to wash away sins, the sins of rebels like you and me. So if you humble yourself and you come to him and you repent of your sins and you turn from your sins, you too will be cleansed by that precious blood. And He will forgive you of all your sins. And He will give you eternal life with Him. And I am telling you, there is nothing more valuable in this life, and certainly the one to come, than to have eternal life in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You have given us this unbelievable warning of Judas in the Scriptures. And Lord, it is a a fearful thing that one could be so close and truly be forever far away. And Lord, I pray for those of us who know you, oh God, that we would be heated up in our hearts for you, that we would see you as more precious and more valuable. Lord, that we would be sold out for you, that our days would be given and governed by you, that we would dedicate our very lives to you, that Lord, we would not be swayed by the things of this world, Oh God, that we would not want our kind of Messiah, but Lord, that we would surrender to your will as Messiah, as King, Lord, which is in your word. Help us, oh God, for we have so many, so many views and ideas and philosophies coming at us in so many directions. Lord, help us to stand on the word of God and to live it. And Lord, for the soul, the souls in this place, Lord, that think all is well, but it is not. Lord, please convict them. Please show them, Lord, that that Christ will not be toyed with. It's either all or nothing. Either surrender or you're gone. Lord, that you want everything. And you're entitled to everything. And you deserve everything. And Lord, we want to give you everything. 
And so I pray that they would too. I pray that they would see sin and turn and turn to their beloved one and that they would find great joy and hope in you. So Lord, please magnify your name this day. Take these Lord, very inadequate words just preached, Lord, and take what is true and right and, Lord, plaster it on our hearts so that our hearts would grow for him. In his name we pray. Amen. And now would the ushers come forward? Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.